Good morning, CHD. It's November 3rd, 2022. And I have a really special guest today, uh, James Corbett, who is a young man I've been following for, for many years, actually. Um, he is a wunderkind. He did interview me quite, quite a long time ago, about eight, 10 years ago, about the anthrax letters. And he is somebody who has a I don't know if it's unique, but he's one of the very few people who has a very broad worldview about what's going on, who might be doing it, why why might it be happening. He's very good at connecting dots. And so I, I wanted him to talk today about this unique period that we're in and what he thinks might be going on. And I will, um, I'll let James just start talking and I'll throw in questions uh, if he pauses. Well, thank, thank you. you for that introduction. I will only quibble with the fact that I'm no longer so much of a young man, but I certainly was when I interviewed you low those many years ago, and it was an important conversation. So if people are interested in that, I hope they will check it out. It's at CorbettReport.com. Just type Meryl Nass's name into the search bar and you can find and listen to that blast from the past where we were talking about things that become surprisingly re-relevant in this new age of the dawning of the biosecurity state. And that is the way that I situate what has happened over the past couple of years, is that what we are living through is not fundamentally about a virus. This is not about pandemic control. It is more about control, control of the human population. And so I have done a lot of work on this over the past couple of years, as you can imagine. Um, a lot of it stemming back actually to the what I think of as the precursor to what we're living through right now, which was the 2009 swine flu scare, which uh, Dr. Ness, I know I do not have to explain to you, but to the uh, for the benefit of the audience who may not remember that, um, yes, that I think was the sort of the the loading of the weapon, as it were, the, the spawning of the biosecurity state that came to fruition in 2020, 2021, 2022. All of the all of the pieces of the puzzle were there. It's just that swine flu of 2009 turned out to be a complete dud. They couldn't even gin up a scare about it, although they did try, and ultimately it came and went. But it did set some interesting precedents. And as I know, again, as I know you know, there was the European Council and others that were warning about the fact that, hey, the special ad advisors to the WHO board that declared this to be a public health emergency of international concern, a uh, PHEIC, this special designation that the World Health Organization is authorized to declare that sets into motion all of these things, including automatic purchases of medications and vaccines from big pharma manufacturers. Hey, all of these advisors seem to have connections, either sitting on boards or having direct uh, monetary connections to these big pharma companies that benefited from the 2009 scare. And so I did do some work on that. And I did talk about the WHO back in that time frame. But it's one of those things that it slips under the radar for several years while people move on to other subjects, including myself. And lo and behold, it rears its ugly head again in 2020. So I think that's the way we have to situate what we are living through right now. Not fundamentally, it isn't fundamentally about public health um, in any other sense than 
the way that public health can be used essentially to get the the tenter hooks into the population um, by people who wish to control the population. And again, we don't have to speculate about that. We can see that quite clearly in a number of instances. For example, uh, Laura Dodsworth wrote a very important book called A State of Fear about the UK government's own nudge unit, which is what it's called. It's a actual behavioral uh, insights team that is part of this gaggle of psychologists and and uh, sociologists who are advising the UK government on how best to essentially manipulate the public into doing what the government wants them to do. And this team was advising something called Spy B, which is this uh, advisory board, the Pandemic Influenza B advisory board for for the UK uh, government that was literally telling the UK government how to increase fear in order to increase compliance amongst the population. So I think that is the bottom level of what we have seen over the past couple of years. Obviously, a concerted attempt to make the population as fearful as possible in order to make them as compliant as possible. And for what purpose? Compliance towards what? Well, there are a number of aspects of that, one of which, of course, is the introduction of the mRNA vaccines and the normalization of or even the, the approval of approval of these vaccines um, all, all, and all of the things that stem from that. There are, of course, monetary aspects to this, but there are more fundamental layers, I think, of the control that grid that we see. Let's get into some of those specific aspects of the control grid that as I'm, I'm talking about here, because one of the things that I note is the interesting timing of what we saw taking place in the fall of 2019. Not only, of course, um, the uh, supposed beginning of the spread of COVID-19 itself. And who knows about that origin story? And there obviously still continues to be wrangling over that story, even in the mainstream press. But at that time, at precisely that time, in the fall of 2019, in October of 2019, if memory serves, the Milken Institute was hosting a discussion on universal flu vaccines that featured such speakers as Anthony Fauci, of course, and Dr. Bright and other notables in the space of U.S. public health um, who were talking about, hey, there are these great, amazing new technologies that we're coming up with, like mRNA vaccines and other such things that we can start experimenting with, essentially. But, and, and they could be great because then you could program this universal flu vaccine that everyone takes and everyone will be happy. But there's some problems with it because... Well, I mean, we can't make a vaccine that works once and then you're covered for life because there's no business model in that is essentially what they were admitting. Um, but also, uh, this the development and the uh, and deployment of a brand new vaccination technology is going to take at least 10 years and is going to require billions and billions of dollars, extensive studies. There's going to be a lot of scrutiny. It's going to be a lot of headache. What big pharma manufacturer is going to bother to do all of this? But, you know, the government could come in and in the event of an emergency and, and mandate these types of things and move this process forward. And they were talking about all of this stuff openly. Of course, I am paraphrasing. So do not take my paraphrase at face value. Please go and watch the actual discussion itself, which is available online. I've linked to it before. The Milken Institute, October 2019. You can go and see them talking about this quite openly. And lo and behold, just a few months later, the exact scenario that comes along to hand on a silver platter to these servants of the big pharma agenda 
exactly what they wanted. So that that's one of those insights where you see immediately what what this is about and what's really happening here. But there's much more to it than simply that. Um, I have connected the the biosecurity state that we're seeing put into place right now to the homeland security state that we saw slotted into place, obviously, after the catalyzing catastrophic events of September 11, 2001. There was the headlong rush into the creation of an entire infrastructure, the Department of Homeland Security, the, the TSA, all of these institutional structures that did not exist, or at least did not exist in the form that they, uh, they do now, um, that were operationalized on the back of the excuse of September 11, 2001. Uh, I, I, they had been in the planning uh, stages before that point, including, of course, the Patriot Act, which had been written before 9-11 took place and was simply brought out, dusted off, and uh, cleaned up and given a little bit of preamble so that people connected it to the events of 9-11. It had nothing to do with that. Anyway, people who have looked into the history of that will know how that crisis was used as an excuse for the, for the creation of a homeland security state in the exact same way the crisis of the past couple of years, generated or or real, um, has been used as a an excuse for the creation of a biosecurity state. And I've pointed to specific instances of that that have cropped up in recent years because it is interesting that it's essentially the same grift. So you find a lot of the same corporate actors even trying to get in on this grift. So in uh, a, a podcast that I did a couple of years ago called COVID-911 from Homeland Security to Biosecurity, I uh, played a clip of uh, Karen Seidman Becker, who is the CEO of uh, something called CLEAR. Most people know CLEAR by going to the airport. It was born uh, after 9-11. Uh, this is another crisis uh, with, a, with a new component that's being born. Explain what this product is in terms of how it's going to work uh, relating to COVID. So you're right. Clear was born out of 9-11. And it was about a public-private partnership leveraging uh, innovation to enhance homeland security and delight customers. And that was really the beginning of screening 1.0. And just like screening was forever changed post 9-11, in a post-COVID environment, you're going to see screening and public safety significantly shift. But this time it's beyond airports, right? It's sports stadium, it's retail, as Dana talked about. It's um, office buildings, it's restaurants. And so while we started with travel at our core, we're a biometric secure identity platform where it's always been about attaching your identity to your boarding pass, the airport, or your ticket to get into a sports stadium or your credit card to buy a beer. And so now with the launch of Clear Health Pass, it's about attaching your identity to your COVID-related health insights for employers, for employees, for customers. Everybody wants to know that each other's safe to start to reopen businesses and get America moving. In that interview, she specifically linked the 9-11 the events to the COVID-19 events. She said... Um, uh, uh, clear this health pass that they're they're trying to pimp on the back of this scare. Clear was born out of 9/11, and it was about a public-private partnership leveraging innovation to enhance homeland security and delight customers. Because that's what this digital health pass technology is about, or these digital uh, IDs. Uh, and that was really the beginning of screening 1.0. And just like screening was forever changed post 9/11. In a post-COVID environment, you're going to see screening and public safety significantly shift. Uh, but this time, it's beyond airports, right? It's sports stadiums. It's retail 
uh, it's office buildings, it's restaurants. So yes, as really, literally, in some cases, the exact same digital electronic infrastructure that was laid out um, as part of the Homeland Security State has simply been repurposed for the biosecurity state. And obviously the conditioning of the public towards the vaccine passes, uh, which will eventually become just general health passes, which has already in various places, and the precedent has been set, been employed essentially as a tool for allowing or disallowing access to various public places, or even to leave your own home, as we have seen in China, where if you do not have the green QR code pass on your smartphone or your device, you're not going to be able to leave your your residential area if and when they, they implement the lockdowns. So this is exactly what I think this is this has always been about. This is what it's aiming at. We see the exact same companies in some cases really just repurposing their old Homeland Security terror boogeyman uh, infrastructure for the new COVID boogeyman biosecurity state. And although 2022, it does seem like perhaps the, the, the peak of the hysteria has passed and people are now starting to understand and, and situate this in in a, in a more reasonable context, but the precedent has already been set and these things have already been put in place. So now we're looking ahead to what is coming next in this, because if you think that, okay, that, that happened and that's over and that'll never come up again and they'll never try to gin, gin up another crisis or there will never be another crisis, it doesn't, again, it does not matter if it's real or fake, they will try to use anything that comes along at any time to simply flip the switch back on and do all of this all over again, perhaps even harder next time. As I have said since the beginning of this crisis, I think what we have lived through is essentially a precedent-setting time. This has been about getting these precedents in place that, okay, now there are these vaccine passports, I mean health passports, I mean digital IDs, and you're all going to have to carry them around at all times. But don't worry, guys. It'll work 99.9% .9 of the time. Just don't worry about it. It's there. It's part of your life now. You've been conditioned to scan the code or whatever. It's it's all fine. And now, oh, now you're going to get your uh, central bank digital currency involved with that. And we will deplatform you if you say the wrong things. But don't worry, guys. It's just Kanye West or Alex Jones or someone. We'll deplatform them. Not It's not for the average person. All of this precedents, all of these precedents are being set right now for what is coming next. But there is the flip side to that, that if we disallow this agenda from moving forward, if we truly do stop it in its tracks here, we set the precedent that no, you cannot abridge these fundamental rights that we have. So this is this is the incredibly historic nature of the times that we're living through. There's a lot on the line. And that's why that's why things like the, the Freedom Convoy in Canada that we saw earlier this year are really incredibly important things. And that's why they cracked down on that as hard as they possibly could. But that's why we need to continue resisting in, in actions like that, in demonstrable actions, and to refuse every piece of this agenda as it's coming together. Because there are a million different pieces of this that each individual one looks perhaps well, I can go along with that. But if you put go along with all of it, then you find yourself in the maw of this biosecurity state. So I think we have to reject the digital ID. We have to reject the idea of the QR code scanning and the health passes and the central bank digital currency and on every front reject all of this. And perhaps one of the next 
major points of uh, contention will be the 2024 question mark proposed World Health Organization uh, rejiggering of their uh, their fundamental treaty, which will potentially uh, a potential complete rewriting of the rules for what the World Health Organization can come to, what actions they can take in the event of a declared public health emergency of international concern. So um, let me just fill some of that in. By the way, monkeypox, which is nothing and it's fading out, uh, was made a continuing public health emergency of international concern uh, today, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, so the WHO can declare one of these public health emergencies at whim and has done so about 10 different times in the last 15 or 20 years. And there are there are no restrictions on it. As long as they can say they've got a new virus or it's in a new place and it might affect more than one country, that's, that's it. And then the de declaration, as you said, brings in purchases of billions of dollars in vaccines that haven't been developed yet, that don't exist. Okay, and, and there's a problem with the mRNA vaccines because you can't do quality control on them after they're made. There's so many little bits and pieces of messenger RNA, you cannot test them. There are millions of different pieces. You can't find out whether some of them are in there deliberately. You know, you've got your, your main messenger RNA for the spike or whatever. Okay, maybe that's 50% of what's in the bottle. Well, what's in the other 50% of the messenger RNA that is claimed to be breakdown products, but might be coding for other proteins, might be turning on and off genes, <clears throat> may have many other functions, but you can't find them because those things are needles and haystacks. So the, the mRNA technology, if we are to, as a population, be able to actually know what's in the bottle before we get injected, the mRNA technology is not acceptable. Well, Dr. Ness, let me pick your brain about that because um, my question then would be, if if the other contents of these vials are the breakdown contents of this mRNA that's supposed to be in there. And let's say this is actually what's going on and it's being manufactured in a good faith way, but it just, the product breaks down. Uh, does that imply that each, every single vial is going to be somewhat different from every other vial and thus there can be no possible control standard for them? Um, well, presumably, where does the breakdown occur? So if the breakdown occurs in the vat, right, then most of the vials in that batch will be similar. If the breakdown occurs because the vaccine has gotten too warm or for some other reason, and it occurs en route or at the site of uh, use, then each vial could be very different. But um, what I was also saying is that there may be deliberately additional messenger RNA added or other products. It's very, you, so you can't, according to FDA standards, you cannot look at a final product vaccine and approve it or, or not approve it. You must do the quality control testing at every stage of manufacture because you can't tell. There's no way to tell when you've got the final product, whether it's gonna cause various problems because we don't have the technology to, to identify potential pro all potential problems. And in this case, we had a very peculiar arrangement where the de Defense Department was working uh, with the manufacturers and they were working off, as far as I can tell, Defense Department specifications. 
And often the Defense Department was obtaining ingredients. And so the manufacturers weren't exactly manufacturers. They were cogs in, in a wheel. And, and nobody's responsible now because they were un, the whole thing is made under e, EUA, Emergency Use Authorization, um, which, by the way, legally shouldn't have happened because there were other products that could have acted like vaccines. Hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin can be used intermittently, um, you know, every few weeks and um, provide prophylaxis over a longer term. And now we know the vaccines only last a few months. So, you know, they, they really had comp could have had comparable effects. And the government had to deny that those drugs would have prevented COVID. Um, okay, so that's one thing. There are other, there's a whole bunch of laws that came into effect after 9-11. And there was another one that uh, got dusted off, which was the Model Emergency Health Powers Act, which CDC paid a guy named Lawrence Augustin to write and then uh, rework it and then push it out to the states after 9-11. And that um, model law for states is what is being in, used today to give governors um, powers, totalitarian powers, that it allows governors to shut down businesses, to come even potentially to come into your house and take property. And um, again, when people passed these laws in the state legislatures, they had no idea how they would be used. They were just reeling from 9-11 and they, and they were told, again, CDC said, oh, well, we need to put more powers into the hands of governors in the event of an emergency. And of course, who says no to that? Um, <laughs> so, so here we are with that. There were, there were other laws, the PREP Act, the Bioshield Act, that um, channeled uh, somewhere between 100 and $150 billion to the biodefense biosurveillance industry. And that um, is another problem because now the taxpayer finds they've been financing, they have been paying for their own demise. They have been paying to develop the biological weapons and these uh, rotten uh, vaccine platforms like the messenger RNA. So anyway, go back to you, James. Well, let me just... Uh reiterate what you're saying there is that the infrastructure for what we have seen in 2020, 21, 22 did not come just out of nothing. It came from a very specific historical lineage going back to the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act that you talked about. Um, I, I have talked about that before. In fact, I did an episode of my podcast back in 2009 on medical martial law, talking about these very subjects, talking about the, uh, the Model State uh, Act, talking about um, the swine flu scare that was uh, still fresh in the memory at that point, um, talking about the WHO and the public health emergency of international concern. So once again, this is not, this should not be news to my long-term audience. But as I say, it's one of those things that, like, for example, the terrorism um, scare that caused the Homeland Security State, it's one of these things that can pop up in the news and then be forgotten about for years at a time and then pop up again. And uh, that's, it, it certainly feels like fighting a war on many different fronts in which we are being assaulted uh, essentially by those trusted elected representatives who are there to serve us, the public, right? Uh, but whenever an emergency pops up, they suddenly have all of these dictatorial powers that people didn't know that they had because they weren't paying attention during the times when they weren't under a declared state of emergency. So um, I think that that is one of the things that we are fighting is the sort of the general complacency and 
unawareness of the public that they are even in a fight at all. And I think we have to understand this as essentially an assault that is taking place on our most basic freedoms and liberties. And I say this as a Canadian in Japan. I, I know you're in America. A lot of your audience is probably in America. But where, this is a truly global phenomenon that is happening. And we have seen basically every country on the planet acquiesce to this agenda to greater or lesser degrees. And there may be places that held out a little bit more than other places, but pretty much every country on the planet, almost every single country on the planet is a signatory to the WHO, uh, which puts them under the uh, the PHEIC and everything that that entails. And as they start to amend the pandemic, the coming pandemic treaty that they're threatening the world with in the next couple of years, that will presumably plunge us even further off that cliff. Again, if people are not paying attention to this issue of this is not, if we allow current events to distract us once again from this particular thread of the plot, then this will be the one that comes and bites us in the rear end when we're least expecting it. And uh, unfortunately, it's the same with the, all the other vectors for this particular agenda, because I think there is a singular agenda. It is about implementing technocratic control grid. That is ultimately what this is about. That's why I say that what happened over the past couple of years is not about a virus. It is fundamentally about the implementation of a perfect system of electronic control, biometric identification tied into social credit scores, tied into a central bank issued digital currency um, that can be turned off and on as as the powers that shouldn't be see fit. That is what we are stepping into. And until we really see the bigger picture of this, I think all of these disparate pieces of news that come at us in this disjointed way may not make any sense. It may seem like just a bunch of haphazard things that are just happening and and everything's going crazy and oh, they're back to normal now. Although we've been told there is no uh, old normal anymore. We're in the new normal, right? Um, but why? What What is driving this? And I think once you understand that, you realize, okay, so whatever happens, the people in these positions of power are going to attempt to hammer that nail down into the technocratic control grid that they're trying to slot into place. And once we see it through that lens, we realize what the real fight is about. Fundamentally, it is about trying to get us into that digital gulag that they're starting to construct around us. So the more that we willingly go in there, okay, maybe it'll be all right if we just go in the digital gulag. We have to resist that with all our might because I think that's what this fight is really aiming at. Okay, so um, I, I totally agree with you. What people um, say to me is, look, who's doing it? How could this be? How could they corral all these countries? You know, what is the mechanism? And I think we have to talk a little about that um, to, to make it plain to people. You know, we can throw in a Jeffrey Epstein. We can throw in the fact that now we finally acknowledge <clears throat> that many political leaders have... Um, maybe being blackmailed or or maybe in fear or may have some other skeletons in their closet that have enabled um, forces to, to gain control of them. So um, uh, what do you think about who might be doing this? How could they possibly have so much power? And what are the mechanisms uh, through which this was implemented at, at say, country level? If you want the deep dive into that answer, I would say go through the thousands and thousands of hours in the corporate report archives, because I've essentially been swirling around this very question 
for the last 15 years in various aspects of the agenda. But if you want a brief one hour summary, <laughs> I did a questions for Corbett, one of my regular uh, podcast series uh, last year uh, called How Can a Global Conspiracy Work? that looked at this question, because it is a question that I get from time to time, okay, the, you know, this thing seems to be a setup, or this thing isn't what is being portrayed, but do you really think there's this big, grand global vision? And I guess my answer in some senses is yes and no. I do not po posit that it is the cartoon version of conspiracy, where there's the one group that meets behind closed doors, and they decide every single event that's going to happen in the world for the next year, and then it happens exactly as they planned. I do not think it's as cartoonish as that. However, I do think that there are powerful people who are above governments themselves who are able to implement agendas across uh, national lines or uh, ideological lines, even religious lines, and are able to work towards the creation of a global system of control. I do not think it necessarily has to end up in some sort of global government that everyone will identify as the global government. And there's the global headquarters. I don't think it will end up in that simplistic estate, um, but that there can be a global overarching system of control in which you have regional powers that, that vie with each other for positions in that dominance hierarchy seems to me pretty natural. This only sounds implausible and crazy and wild-eyed conspiracy theorizing if you have been indoctrinated your entire life to believe that yes, demonstrably through every era of human history that we can study, there has always been powerful groups of oligarchs working behind the scenes in machinations, power grabs, trying to get control of each other, assassinating Caesar to try to get control of the Republic or whatever. Uh, these things happen over and over and over and over and over and over and over again throughout history. But in our era, to imagine that that happens is crazy. You must be out to lunch. What are you thinking? So I think there is often an argument from ignorance here, which is a logical fallacy that a lot of people fall into. Simply, I, I, I don't I don't know anything about that history. I don't know about what's going on, but it just sounds crazy. Argument from uh, incredulity, another logical fallacy that's often employed here. So the nuts and bolts of how this functions. Again, we do not have to go onto speculative limbs for that type, the answer to that question. We can look at things that have been openly written about on this question, because as H.G. Wells was writing about um, a century ago, um, this is an open conspiracy. Uh, there, People think that there's some sort of super secret plot that's hidden behind seven layers of classification. A lot of what is happening has actually been openly talked about, openly written about, put out in Bland's white papers and discussed at conferences that no one in the public bothers to care about because it's not entertaining and fair enough. Maybe they just want to live their lives and not scrutinize what powerful people are doing. But if they are interested in what powerful people are doing, I think for the big picture issues, you could look at some interesting works that have come out over the years. Like there was a book called The Next Million Years by Charles Galton Darwin. And yes, that, uh, that book lives up to the rather ambitious title that that would seem to imply. Uh, Charles Galton Darwin being, of course, of the Charles Darwin line, I believe Charles Darwin's grandson, uh, who uh, was writing about the ways that, essentially the thesis is for the species to really evolve in a significant way uh, and speciation to take place. It, it takes a million years of, uh, of change, but we could shorten that down through scientific uh, discoveries that, that are coming, uh, coming to light these days. And so he was talking about ways that essentially the human 
species can be genetically or otherwise manipulated in order to change us into something else. Um, and that theme was picked up on time and time again. Bertrand Russell, of course, warning the masses in uh, the impact of science on society about how diet injections and injunctions could be used by scientific dictators of the future in order to create and shape the type of populace that they want, compliant and obedient and whatever, to, in his words, uh, make it uh, make an uprising of the general public uh, as unthinkable as an uprising of uh, a flock of sheep to the practice of eating mudden um, was his memorable way of, of formulating that. Um, but moving forward to our own age and how it is actually functioning, that sort of global conspiracy, if you want to call it that, is actually functioning in our own age. Again, we do not have to speculate about that. We could read a book like Superclass by David Rothkopf, who I, I don't know if he sees himself as a member of this superclass that he's writing about, but he certainly um, was an important figure in uh, WADS, I will say, in the foreign policy space, being a, essentially a, a mini Kissinger. He actually worked as the head of Kissinger and Associates for, for a long time and uh, wrote for foreign policy and edited foreign policy, I believe, and other things like that. But uh, David Rothkopf wrote a book in 2000, I want to say 2008, uh, called Superclass, which was about um, this, what he identified as a superclass of about 6,000 people who do not sit in governments themselves, or some of them do, but many of them don't, but are able to enact a transnational agenda across state boundaries because they are in influential positions in powerful institutions and establishments. So we could look at the Royal Institute for International Affairs, the Council on Foreign Relations. We could look at Bilderberg Group and World Economic Forum and all of these different groupings of very rich, very powerful, interconnected corporate slash governmental slash non-governmental players who come together at various points to work together on certain agenda points. And it's, as I, as I am increasingly uh, convinced of myself, and I hope have laid out a quite a bit of um, material for my audience along these lines, I think it is generally united by a, an ideology which takes different forms and different flavors in different eras of human history. Um, in the late 19th century into the early 20th century, it took the form of eugenics, which is now seen as outdated and, of course, no one wants anything to do with it. It's a silly pseudoscientific idea. At the time, it was the rock star super science of the day, and anyone who was anyone at the very least had to give lip service to the idea of eugenics, which for those who do not know, you definitely should look that word up and discover about its origins and how it was coined by Francis Galton of the Galton-Darwin line and all of that. But essentially the idea that certain people essentially are fit to rule over other people because of, by virtue of their genes. Um, uh, eugenics, good, good genes, well-born essentially is what the phrase means. And its proponents, even at the time, even in the early 20th century when it was absolutely everyone who was anyone was a eugenicist, an open avowed eugenicist, including President Teddy Roosevelt and many, many others. Um, at the time, they argued there was eugenics, which was about trying to foster the, the, best, the best people in society and get, foster their families and get them to breed more and have more children so that they can inherit the earth, essentially. 
Um, but there is, of course, always the dark shadow of eugenics, which is dysgenics, trying to weed people out of the population pool uh, because they are not well-born. They, they have defective pro protoplasm, which was the way that it was formulated in its pseudoscientific uh, formulation in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, they didn't even really understand the mechanism of genetics and, and uh, passing on of traits at the time, not, certainly not to the degree that we do today. Um, but still, they were uh, fostering this idea that people who are poor are poor because they have these bad genes. And then they have children. And of course, their children turn out to be poor and, and often vagrants and bums and roustabouts and, and, uh, and uh, criminals because they, are, they have bad genes. And uh, on that basis, you can start thinking about, well, if we just start sterilizing everyone who has these bad genes and making sure that they can't pass them on to the next generation, then that might be one way to handle this. Or, of course, the more drastic answer, of course, is to literally kill people who cannot justify their existence. Sounds crazy, but George Bernard Shaw talked about that. There should be a panel that everyone goes before every, every few years and justify their existence and if they cannot do so to the, uh, the to the appeasement of the the counselors in this learned panel they will be put to death um many will argue oh george bernard shaw he was just being you know he was being a bit of a pro provocateur he, he didn't really mean that well he really was a member of the fabian society and really someone who really did advocate for uh, eugenics quite uh, quite openly um but beyond that of course we've seen that that fundamental idea being spread throughout the generations. And as I say, it takes different forms in different generations. So I'd say mid to late 20th century, it took the form essentially of, it took the cloak of green, the idea of the environmental movement. It's for the earth. It's about stopping the earth from overpopulation. And how do we get rid of overpopulation? Well, there's there's a few too many people on this planet. We're going to have to get rid of some of them. And once again, who gets to decide who who lives and thrives into the next generation and who doesn't? Who gets to decide who gets weeded out? Um, but even more, I think, dauntingly for the 21st century, I think it is taking on a new flavor, which I identify as the technoc technocratic idea ideology, which was something that actually stemmed from the 1930s. It was started by... Uh, Howard Scott, uh, who was a, essentially a charlatan who talked his talked a good game, but had actually no credentials in any of the things that he pretended to. And uh, M. King Hubbard, who is best known today as the creator of Hubbard's Peak, a.k.a. Peak Oil. And they started this technocracy movement in the late 1920s, early 1930s in the basement of Columbia. Um, they actually were granted a, uh, a space there in the basement of Columbia to begin working on this technocratic idea that they had, which was essentially, uh, I don't want to do it uh, injustice to the idea of technocracy by trying to summarize it in a sentence or two, but essentially it is the science of social engineering. Um, and on every level, not just society, but economics, monetary system, everything by a technological elite who will steward over humanity wisely. Um, that eventually they got kicked out of Columbia when Howard Scott was proven to be a charlatan who didn't have the credentials that he said he did and all of that. But they started Technocracy Inc., which was this movement that was is largely forgotten today, but was quite large and quite popular at that time in the chaotic 1930s, in the midst of the Great Depression, people casting about looking for new ideas. Technocracy was one of those thing options that people were looking at. As many people joined the Communist Party, for example, in the 30s, many people were looking at technocracy in the 30s as well. 
ultimately the technocracy inc movement i thought it still exists today but as a shell of its former self but that idea became uh, I, I think the kernel for what the 21st century um, version of that eugenics agenda is. And that is represented in the technocracy study course that was written by M. King Hubbard in 1938, I believe, in which uh, they laid out this agenda list for what they need to implement this technocratic idea that was totally, absolutely off the wall, bonkers, insane by the standards of the 1930s when this was being written. It was talking about uh, monitoring the purchase of every single item in the economy in real time, 24 hour continuous tracking and surveillance of every transaction that's taking place in the economy, immediately instantaneously calculating the energy inputs that went into the creation of that product and the energy outputs that will be related to that product, including the energy output of, if it's food, then it's fuel for the human engine, which is what they literally called it in the technocracy study course, the human engine. Um, so let me interrupt. I think what you are talking about is a um, is a love affair with populations and what they think is science. And um, since the Industrial Revolution improved the living status of people in general, not necessarily in the third world, but certainly in our world, um, the, the elevation of this concept of science that has brought us all these goods um, has been accomplished without explaining to anybody what science really is. So science is now our religion. And if you call something scientific, everyone's supposed to love it. Um, so as you said, eugenics was supposed to be this scientific way of improving the population and improving the future. And California, as part of that, did sterilize many, many people, mostly minorities, many women in particular. So if a, if a woman went to prison in California, she was likely to be sterilized when she got out of prison. Um, we're talking several tens of thousands of people in California. And California was still performing some sterilizations of people it could get its hands on, people who, who were you know, mentally impaired in some way, uh, up until the early part of the 21st century. Um, this this uh, belief in science is what allowed this guy, Scott, the, the charlatan, to gain a, a huge following in the early 20th century because he was going to use science to make uh, everything better and to measure everything. Of course, measurement is, is a uh, critical part of science, but a lot of things can't be measured. And uh, certainly a lot of things shouldn't be measured. Like, you know, everybody shouldn't be given the same amount of food because different people need different amounts of food. And some people need more B12 and some people need more folate. And, you know, we have an appetite and a taste to help us figure out what it is we need. Um, and we don't need uh, technocrats to do that for us. There has been a normalization of the idea that there are too many people on the planet. And you also clued me into Maurice Strong, who I'd never heard of before I heard you talk about him. And so for the last um, 50 plus years in, in the United States and in other parts of the world, there has been a concept that there isn't, there simply isn't enough. 
and peak oil was part of that. Peak oil was we're going to run out of petroleum and we're going to have to do everything. You know, all plastics are made from petroleum and all of our practically all of our fuels, at least in the U.S., are made from petroleum and it's going to be gone. We're not going to be able to have any more. So we're just going to have to have less or find a new way of life. But these ideas were not based on any science or facts. They were concepts that were sort of driven into the culture and made to be um, virtuous. So we didn't have to buy less because that, that would have harmed industry, but we had to start recycling. We had to pay lip service to, to the fact that there wasn't gonna be enough. We had to be fooled with our recycling that it was actually getting recycled when in fact many um, towns and cities had to just dump the stuff somewhere else. What you had recycled was just trash but we had to pretend we were really doing something. So everyone had gotten in, just like going for your yearly shot, you you acclimatize people to the idea that we just have to go for boosters. We're not gonna be healthy without our uh, injections every year or maybe for COVID every four months. Um, so we've, we've now had 50 years of being acclimated to the fact that humans are destroying the earth that we're not going to have enough and that the planet is heating up and it's all because of people and we have to do major things sometime in the future about that but at the same time now now it's 2022 and we've had a 50-year warming period and now we're going into the cooling period and so the climate narrative has to shift and um the climate narrative was has been very important for, for pushing this whole idea that we're going to have to give up and live with less, et cetera. Um, how do you see the um, change of the climate story unfolding and how does it relate to everything else? An incredibly important piece of this puzzle that in fact, it relates exactly to what I was just talking about. Um, it's again, it's many of the exact same characters that were involved in the early stages of the eugenics movement were then the people who were leading the overpopulation movement, the environmental movement and going into the global warming scare. And uh, one of the key figures that you can use at, just as a proxy to, to sort of get a window into that story is, as you mentioned, Morris Strong who maybe is someone that most people haven't heard of in the general public, but they probably should have, um, because it's a, it's a remarkable story of this plucky youngster from the middle of nowhere in uh, Manitoba in Canada, uh, who was a junior high school dropout, who went on to become this incredible organizer of international events and uh, organizations. He went on to, uh, uh, he was the organizer of the Stockholm environmental conference in 1972. He was a founding director of the United Nations Environment Program. He was the secretary general of the Rio Earth Summit. He was the founder of the Earth Council and the Earth Charter Movement, the chair of the World Resources Institute, commissioner of the World Commission on Environment and Development, a board member of all sorts of institutions and organizations, including the International Institute for Sustainable Development and the Stockholm Environment Institute and the African American Institute, and just this bewildering array of credentials that he had. And oh, what was the other thing that I was forgetting? Oh, that's right. He was an oil patch millionaire from the time he was in his 20s um, because he was a Rockefeller made man. He met 
uh, Rock David Rockefeller early, early on in his life. And from that point on, had this remarkable, charmed career um, going on to this position of international uh, prominence on the world stage. It was it's truly a crazy story when you start to look at it. But then you start to find the pieces of the puzzle that connect this thread. For example, the Rockefeller family, of course. What do people associate with the Rockefellers? It's oil, of course. It's the oil monopoly. But what people might not associate so strongly, actually, these days, maybe they do. Rockefeller philanthropy. The Rockefeller Institute has done all these wonderful things for humanity, like uh, the uh, the GM revolution, the Green Revolution, all of these other things that the Rockefellers uh, through their family philanthropy um, institution have funded. But one thing that they were also heavily involved in in the early 20th century was uh, was eugenics and fostering and promoting eugenics, not only in America, but also in Germany, where, of course, we saw what happened with the German eugenics movement and where that went. That was, again, funded by the Rockefellers to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars in the 1920s and 30s. Um, but then you have someone like Rockefeller stewarding over um, someone like uh, Morris Strong. You have uh, John D. Rockefeller III sitting on the uh, the population uh, the population the the report that was given to uh, the president in the the nineteen sixties about overpopulation being the pressing concern. He was the founder of the uh, the Population Council, which actually, interestingly enough, shared offices with the American Eugenics. Uh, a society for a short period of time. So hmm, I wonder if there's a connection there. Um, but yes, this has been a ginned up crisis in the exact same way that I think we see these ginned up crises being used to forward, again, the ultimate same agenda. And for people who are interested in this, I would direct them to my documentary, How and Why Big Oil Conquered the World. It is available at CorbettReport.com slash Big Oil, B-I-G-O-I-L, all one word. And that's completely for free, as with all my work. So please, if you do not know about this story in its detail, please go there. And I also did another edition of my questions for Corbett series on are there limits to growth? Talking about the Club of Rome's infamous 1972 report on limits to growth and how, again, we're running out of everything. We're running out of all these resources. Look, this world cat model that we came up with, this computer model, um, says that we're going to all be starving to death by the year 2000. Um, they had to revise that by the time we started to get to the year 2000 because they realized they were wrong. But don't worry, guys, we've revised it. And now now we can tell you that we're exactly on track, exactly as we didn't predict. <laughs> anyway, I did a complete breakdown of that total pseudoscientific nonsense. But you're right. It All it has to do is don the mantle of scientism, essentially, and say, oh, this is scientific, guys. You don't understand this this heady scientific stuff. But look, the computer tells us that this is going to happen. So you must believe it. Um, this is how this, this agenda functions. And um, so I see a direct historical parallel between all of these things leading us to this point and exactly what we are seeing in this crisis of, our, of the current day and age, where once again, if you criticize Fauci, you are criticizing the science, right? He is the science. So uh, you, and you wouldn't criticize science, would you? It's the, essentially the same operation taking place over and over and always for the same end, always, always driving at this point of trying to control the population. Population control has a couple of different meanings, doesn't it? It could be about what most people associate with that term, population control, as in stopping this stem, this horrible problem of overpopulation, which, oh, by the way, we are now facing demographic winter in 
every developed nation and almost every nation on the planet, we're heading into crisis territory under replacement rate of 2.1 uh, children per couple. Um, but that to the side, oh no, the overpopulation problem, uh, it's going to, we're all going to die in a sea of people, um, despite the fact that every single thing that Paul Ehrlich ever said, uh, every prediction he ever made turned out to be false, but he's still lauded as some sort of visionary thinker. Um, but that is the, uh, that is essentially the scam that is being run. And it's, that is why all of this is about controlling the population in that sense and controlling the population in the other sense of that word, as in controlling what the population does, where it goes, how it interacts, who it interacts with, in what way they interact, on what online platforms they are allowed or not allowed to use, what kind of bank account they are allowed or not allowed access to. That is the type of population control that is coming in, um, I think, again, directed towards the the eugenics ideal of fostering the families of the best people in society who are clearly the rich people in society and trying to suppress the rest of the population. So um, what do you think they're gonna do with the climate narrative? So climate narrative is, I think there's a lot of signals that this is going to, they're going to try to transition from the COVID hysteria into the climate hysteria, which of course they've been building up the climate hysteria for decades now. So they have a lot more propaganda and conditioning to work with on that front. And so of course we have seen the idea of climate lockdowns being floated. It worked so well for COVID. Well, if only we had the same sense of emergency about the climate, we could institute climate lockdowns. Wouldn't it be so nice if we weren't out there polluting the environment with all this filthy human activity of humans trying to you know, live their lives and be productive? No, 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 no. We need to lock people in their homes. But don't worry, guys. There's all this technology coming coming into view for people to work, you know, telework and you, know, you work at home and you don't need to leave your house. You got Uber Eats and you got everything you need. You never have to leave your little pod, your shell. And all of these uh, technologies are being directed towards increasingly limiting our ability to even leave our own homes. So I think that is that is the direction they're going to try to take this. And um, we see a lot of worrying connections between the COVID narrative and the climate narrative, including the fact that now doctors are literally diagnosing people with climate illness or saying that they died of climate change, um, which is now literally starting to happen in various places as they say, well, you know, uh, this this heat stroke was obviously caused by climate change. Therefore, this person died of climate change um, and other nonsense like that. But that is the way that they're going to try to push this forward. And we see signs of it every single day, even though, again, this is an entire can of worms that we do not have time to go into today. But if people are interested, please check out my work on this subject over the years. I have done a lot on the science the science of global warming, which you will find a lot of problems with in the exact same way as you find with the science of COVID and pandemics and all of this that we've seen over the past couple of decades, a uh, couple of years. Yeah. So we're getting towards the end of the hour. Um, the question is, what can we do? And what you've told us is there's basically, you know, about 6,000 people behind this. And there's 8 billion other people that don't want this they and these six thousand are basically um, consumers of an ideology that has been going on for generations that they are not capable of judging the validity of um, 
they don't even know why they're going there. It's sort of something that started like a like a rock or like a snowball gathering steam down a, a snowy mountain. And um, I think when they figure out that there isn't a climate crisis, they're not they're not really uh, at least their apparatchiks, the people who are carrying out their plans for them, um, realize there isn't a crisis and really they're just taking us to a dystopian future for no real reason just because they can um i think a lot of people are going to jump ship but i think the rest for the rest of us we've got to not comply and we have lots of ways to not comply i mean in the us we haven't used most of them uh, but we form unions again we form neighborhood groups um we have uh general strikes. Nobody goes to work. You know, you turn your computer off. You don't go to work. Um, you don't like what they're doing to you. You don't let them do it. And when there's a group of, you know, if, so, if the police come to your house, you get a phone network and you got 50 people there showing up and the police back off. Um, the, the fortunate thing about the U.S. is we have a lot of people with guns and and so the police have never been in the habit of just busting down people's doors because they know what happens some, when you do that. Um, and we're in a rather unique position and I think that's why we have been uh, had less of a boot on our neck than people in a number of other countries like Australia and Canada. However, the midterm elections are coming and once they're over, if, uh, and I don't know, it might be no, no matter which side wins, the boot may come down harder. And so it's time to really start thinking about making your connections with others and making plans for how you're going to deal with this at the local level, as well as at the larger level where we have to change the laws, we have to get out of the WHO, you know, we, we you know, England had a Brexit. And we need a who exit. Yeah. So, um, you know, let's do all that, but also, you know, figure out how to plant a garden. And we just have to get through these next few years. Absolutely. Of let me let me underline that because this is so important. Again, if we only concentrate on what's going wrong, people will unfortunately steer towards that. That's why I created a, a regular weekly, mostly weekly podcast called Solutions Watch, where every week I'm looking at different things that we can do to actually change our lives and change the world for the better. Sometimes very small little details that people are going to think, well, that's not going to change the world, but it could actually improve your life. But sometimes the big picture things as well. And uh, in that series, I've examined all sorts of basically all of the things that you're talking about there and the di different ways that people can organize uh, on a community level and start to change things um, where they live and in their own household and and other things like that. But it seemed simple. It seemed very sort of basic. But one of the things that gave me the most heart in all of the, uh, the, the pushback against the craziness of the past couple of years were the picnic protests that sprung up in a number of places around the world, um, protesting the, uh, the establishments, the dining establishments that wouldn't let people in without the vaccine. There were people who were simply, okay, and setting up a little picnic outside in the, in the, in the street in front of the, the place where they were kicked out and just helping themselves. And other people would come in and join in. That's the kind of thing, it seems, again, it seems pretty, well, silly, well, it's not gonna change anything. But honestly, I think it's that type of mindset change 
that we need more so than anything, that we do not need this their elaborate systems of control in order to participate in their rigged systems and to eat their GMO crap and to continue going along with that status quo. We don't need to beg for that place at the table, at their table. We need to create our own table, quite literally in the case of the picnic protests. But I think we can imagine how that extends out throughout all of the spheres of human activity and all of the things that we're doing on a daily basis to essentially participate in our own enslavement, because that is what is happening. Uh, you you make the good point. There's the 6,000 people that Rothkopf identifies in the superclass, for example. There's 8 billion uh, regular human beings. But th the calculation usually isn't that way, because of that 8 billion people, uh, many, 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 many of them are employed in and or actively supporting the systems of control that are stewarded over by those 6,000 or however many people we, we identify in the superclass. So ultimately, the superclass wins because they create this institutional framework and this way of life, essentially, that we all go along with. We have to start pulling out, pulling our power and our energy out of that system to create the systems that we want to put in place. That is the fundamental underlying message of this, that we are incredibly powerful and we really do hold the power to determine the future of the human species, not this tiny group of people who think that they can steward over us. We get to decide that, but we have to actively and consciously work toward bringing in the type of world that we want, which is not easy. I am not Pollyanna about this. I know it's an uphill battle and it's not guaranteed that we will win this in the end. But at any rate, if we don't try, we are going to lose. Thank you very much. We will win. We are definitely going to win, but it may not be this generation. We're going to need a new mindset to win. You know, people have to think differently, that people have to understand what, what are fundamental rights. What's, you know, in the U.S., it's the Bill of Rights and the Constitution that give us um, a great deal of freedom. And if the government and the judicial system actually followed, you know, we would be all set, but they don't. And we have to do, you know, various things that it takes to enshrine, to, to enshrine into our legal system better, better um, ways of guaranteeing these rights. And people don't even know they have them. That's another thing. People do not know what the, because they've deliberately been educated wrong. So we need a new system of education. You know, we need a new judiciary. We need new way of doing policing. We need all, a new food system. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over generations, but it's not going to happen unless we want it, demand it, and, and work to create it. So um, thank you. James, very much. It's been such a pleasure. You really are, um, I hate to use that hackneyed term hero, but you are a hero to me. And um, you've really helped me understand many bits of the world that I didn't grasp before. So um, well, I, I appreciate the work you're doing. I appreciate you helping to spread this information because at the end of the day, this is a battle for people's minds. It's about un understanding. And that is what will ultimately, where we will rise or fall, where we will win or fail is based on our understanding of these things. So thank you for help doing your part to help spread this. You take care.